Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Heart Podcast, episode 226. Today, we are jumping into the conspiracy world once again, folks. This is one of my favorite ones, actually. Yeah, this was definitely a Josh find. (laughs) I didn't find it. I mean, this, this has been out there for a long, long time. This was just a... A Josh pick. A Josh pick, yes. Yeah. Yeah, probably not one that you and Janelle would have been like jumping for joy to cover. No. Which can we just start before we even get into it here by saying that I am not bullying Josh if I disagree with him, okay? <laughs> People, I'm allowed to have my own opinions and not believe in things. Do I look like I get bullied by these girls? No. Well, some would say otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> long, long time ago, we did an episode on Bigfoot and... Oh, Yeah. People the had some very. <laughs> that was like one of my favorite episodes ever. So it was like all these haters skeptic versus believer, and I think people yeah. really thought we were going going at it, which yeah, we were. But yeah, mm. maybe we should do another one. This ding, is ding. this is kind of one of those episodes today because <laughs> I'm not going to tell you whether or not I'm a total believer or not till the very end. Yeah, but this is a little believer versus. Skeptic. I lean more towards that direction versus these two are basically completely. I just. Skeptical. Completely, mm-hmm. never cl- completely closed on anything. Really, True. the doors open like a crack. Yeah, like there's Just a crack the- <laughs> of light coming through. <laughs> okay, so today we're diving into the conspiracy files and we're covering the top secret Philadelphia experiment. Hell yeah! And many would say that this is a hoax, and maybe it is, maybe it's not, or maybe elements of this story are true. And maybe we just don't have all the facts. It's one of those conspiracy theories where you basically have to take someone's word as fact, as truth, because there's really absolutely no physical proof. And that is why I am sus. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't believe I don't want to debate whether or not just because there's not proof doesn't mean it didn't happen. Because don't even get me started on that again. Mm-hmm. It doesn't prove it. It doesn't prove right because I mean we're all in this physical reality. We all want physical proof, but yeah, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> <laughs> some people are reliable in their testimony. Some are not. That's and, true. And this this is kind of interesting because there's several individuals involved with bringing forth the story of the Philadelphia experiment. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this is that it involves the military. This occurs during World War II. Yeah. So this was a very turbulent time in American history. I think sometimes looking back, I don't know if it's just me, but looking back at history, especially around the World War era, mm-hmm. no one living today can fully grasp what it was like. I was just thinking about that too, watching some footage. Because earlier, I'm just like, God, it was like, so different. It, it was, looked horrible. It was very different. It was very different. And. I think just the gravity of of the situation with, you know, all of these major countries going to literal war across the entire globe, I think it's something hard to wrap our head around Mm -hmm. in the capacity that was because most of the machines and war vehicles required human beings to actually pilot them and and versus now it's so much of war Mm -hmm. is done via drones and things Mm -hmm. like that and is... It's guerrilla warfare. It's a totally different style of warfare. Right. And so this, to me, when I look back at this, I can see why potentially this experiment would have happened. Because this experiment deals with basically making 
a military vehicle, in this case a ship, invisible to the naked, you know, invisible mm-hmm. to the eye, but also <laughs> the clothed eye. Yeah. But also kidding. being able to teleport it or potentially time travel with it. So this would have been useful back then, right? Yeah. Well, can you see why the government would want to in, to of look down this road? And they still of course, are. they wouldn't want to be able to do something like this. Which would you rather impossible. do? Would you rather be able to be invisible or would you rather be able to teleport? That's a good question. Mm, both would be very useful in different ways. They would be. But which would you choose? If you can only choose one, which would you choose? I would say... And why? Well, if What would I'm, you do with that ability? Mm, teleportation would be pretty nice because you could just go to like Thailand for the day. Mm-hmm teleportation yeah oh yeah i would definitely pick teleportation yeah although more useful yes it would be more useful but the spying skills that you would get with the invisibility that'd be pretty useful too in its own way but we already have so much technology that's used for spying like that's true physically obviously if you can make your body disappear but if we have microwaves that are spying on us as some would argue you know there's already technology out there that's kind of watching everyone's move all the time like that's hackers? Are you talking about hackers? Yeah. Right. That That is to some extent <laughs> what, what that could be. But also, if you think about it, I feel like invisibility is more of like an espionage surveillance type of capability for me because I, I think it would be fun to just wreak havoc on society and the world in, in a very harmless, <laughs> innocent what? way. Oh my God. Like, I want to wreak havoc in a harmless way. Like, here's what I would do if I had the ability to be invisible. I would make everybody believe everywhere is haunted and that there's Why? things going on around them. But that would only be fun for so long. For the rest of your life, that's the one thing. You could teleport. We could go anywhere. But we want to have dinner in Italy tonight. Done. Yeah, but then people see you. So if you did want to so? do mischievous Activities. Why do you need to be mischievous? I Just don't know. use it for fun. Okay. That's if it I'm was saying. for fun, teleportation would like, be Like, I'd go to Hawaii for the night and have a yeah. little dinner. Although, if you're invisible, you could just walk right on a plane That's and what stand I'm saying. there and get free tickets everywhere. <laughs> but then you're not able to travel. You know, it doesn't speed up the travel process and all that. That's true. Unless you could time travel. Yeah, that doesn't speed up the travel process. So and I really, feel like for emergencies, it'd be very useful. Totally. Teleportation. Oh, yeah. If you're like running late to work. Teleport me there. Skip the traffic. Right. Or if there's like a, you know, natural disaster happening and you that need to too, get the fuck that out. That's <laughs> right. a little bit more on the bigger scale. Yeah, I, I say teleportation by far. Final answer. The issue with teleportation is that it likely will never be possible. Yeah. Unless the only way that teleportation could be. So scientists have actually looked at teleportation and have figured out ways to make particles teleport Mm -hmm. and i'm not even attempt to try to explain how that works exactly but with lasers and um in in labs and things like that they've been able to actually teleport particles to different spaces and different time periods Mm. and so that is possible but the ability to actually dematerialize something and then move it to another location in you know the current time continuum would be nearly impossible just because of the sheer amount of power that you would have to generate in order to do that. So that's the biggest thing with this Philadelphia experiment is the fact that we're dealing with this hundreds of tons of steel with this warship being not only dematerialized, but then teleported Mm. to another area. So the amount of energy required would be massive. And that's why a lot of people would be like, 
obviously based on science and what we know about physics, there's just no possible way for this to happen. However, there is another scenario where you could use wormholes yeah. to traverse these mm. distances, which, as we know, CERN has right. been making micro black holes. They have been so this technology via black hole, which or wormholes that is possible. But again, to make one big enough to allow something to go through it at that size would be very difficult. But it's not come. I believe it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. I think it is possible depending on what types of technology, what types of research have been done. And what's interesting is that the Philadelphia experiment involves some of the smartest minds to ever walk this planet. Albert Einstein and potentially Nikola Tesla were involved. With Keyword this. potentially. Mm-hmm. Potentially. Right. I don't have I don't have the piece of paper that says Albert Einstein and Nikola Tesla worked on the Philadelphia experiment because this experiment was top secret, a black ops project. Yeah, could have been. Could have been. Could have been. What's but today, I mean? I'm going to attempt to explain this project as well as the people who brought it to our attention and kind of what the outcome ultimately was of this experiment. It is pretty interesting, actually, if mm-hmm. it did in fact happen. But at the end of the day, this could just be one giant science fiction fairy tale, which I'd say most people tend to believe. But today, get your tinfoil hat on. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. I wish I had, we had mine. One. Yeah. We should make tinfoil hat and sell it in the merch store. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Find somebody to mass produce oh tinfoil hats so oh that we all can God. wear them with like a little mile higher New logo on there. Fashion yeah. statement. Yes. Hey, speaking of merch. I was going to say. That's right. Woo. What do we got going on, merch? Black Friday sale, baby. Oh, yes. Coming when up. This episode goes live. It started. Oh, shit. So, yeah, we're starting early this year, guys. Yeah, we're running it for two weeks, folks. November 16th to the 30th. Mm-hmm. Almost everything will be 25% off. Almost everything. Almost everything. Not every single item, but a lot of stuff. Mm. Okay. This is the steepest discounts ever offered. Oh, so take advantage of this. If you've been holding out on merch because of prices, or maybe you've just been waiting for the right time, now is the time. Mm -hmm. Go and get it. Because again, there's limited quantities, and most of the stuff Mm -hmm. in there we are not planning to restock. Like Mm -hmm. this is it. Once this is gone, it's gone forever. Yeah. It's like it never happened. It's completely. Just Forever. like we the get it. Philadelphia experience. <laughs> exactly. It's going to teleport to another place. No, she meant that it never oh, happened. <laughs> oh, damn. All right. Josh is like, yes. Dagger in the back already. Here we go. Uh, yes. Oh, definitely God. check that out, guys. MileHireMerch.com. No code needed. We no sh- do needed. ship worldwide as well. Sure do. Oh, so yeah. We do. For all those of you across the world, even if you're on a little tiny island, and Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. We'll get your merch to you. Okay. <laughs> okay. You ready to jump in? Yes. So this episode of the Malhar Podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Simply save Dipsy, Raycon, and Native. But to try to set the sort of stage for this whole thing, we have to go back to the time period that this took place, which was obviously World War II, the 1940s. So Kendall, tell us about what was going on. So during World War II, the U.S. Navy had to face a powerful enemy, the German submarines known as U-boats. The Germans first used these powerful U-boats during World War I, but they'd perfected their U-boat technique 
by the Second World War. And those submarines struck fear into the hearts of Allied powers naval officers. And U-boat is short for Unterseeboot, which is German for undersea boat. These U-boats could travel for thousands of miles without refueling, and they used torpedoes to take out ships multiple times the size of the U-boats themselves. So they were very powerful. And the U-boats were very cramped, so cramped that there wasn't enough room for more than two toilets for the 50 crew members. Can you imagine? That must have gotten really bad at times. Imagine like waiting in line. Oh boy. And one of them doubled as a food locker. So sailors couldn't shower or even change their clothing during missions, which sometimes lasted two months. So as you can imagine, everyone smelled horrific. Conditions in the U-boats were so foul that mildew formed on the sailors' shoes and paper charts rotted away. But that didn't stop submarines from becoming a powerful weapon against U.S. Navy ships. By the time these U-boats reached the U.S. during World War I, they were taking out multiple warships a day. And during World War II, they started sinking hundreds of Allied powers merchant ships with ease. Tens of thousands of sailors were killed. But in 1943, the Allied powers were beginning to gain momentum on their battle against the Axis power. So the number of successful U-boat attacks fell dramatically that year. By then, Allied forces had begun sailing their merchant ships in convoys with air and sea escorts, which made it much harder for submarines to attack. And during May of that year, improvements in the radar technology and the cracking of U-boat ciphers led to the sinking of 41 U-boats. So you can imagine like what a problem it was to have these submarines out there hunting right. all of the Allied forces' ships. I mean, they're trying to get supplies and ammunition, all these things overseas to our soldiers and... These damn German U-boats are out there just annihilating everything mm -hmm. in their paths. And so they were trying to figure out a way to combat this because this was their their submarines were so quick, they're big. Because a lot of these ships just weren't nimble enough to mm -hmm. even see them or, you know, maneuver to a point where they could actually attack and take them out. So then they had to beef up the defenses and they brought in all these escorts and more ships had to get involved. So the military was really having a problem with the with the U-boats. So they were trying to figure out you know, what are some ways that we could potentially improve our ship's capabilities as well as build a ship that is smaller, more nimble to directly combat the U-boats? So the U.S. was winning the battle against the German U-boats by this point, but they were probably looking at other methods to disable the ships in case the Germans found a new way to use them. In other words, the U.S. probably wanted to make sure their defenses were readied. And some people think they may have tried to protect against these attacks by testing out new, seemingly impossible techniques that would bend the space-time continuum itself. But before we get into this experiment, we'll talk about how it first came to light. Take us away, Josh. So a lot of the information that we're going to be covering today comes from years and years of research done by an individual named Andrew H. Hochheimer. He spent like 37 years researching the Philadelphia experiment, and he's probably the main expert on the subject out there. And he actually found out quite a bit of information. So here's what he found and how we came to know about the Philadelphia experiment in the first place. So in late 1955, the chief of the U.S. Office of Naval Research, Admiral N. Firth, received a bizarre manila envelope in the mail. The sender of the envelope was anonymous, and they had written Happy Easter on the outside of the envelope. This envelope had been postmarked from Seminole, Texas, 
but it had no return address. And inside of this manila envelope, the Admiral found a book titled The Case for the UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects by the author Morris K. Jessup. And in the book, Morris urged his readers to pressure their political leaders into funding research for Einstein's unified field theory. This theory, he believed, could be apparently used to create new kinds of spacecraft propulsion systems, including an anti-gravitational method. And this would lead to new methods of space travel that could possibly put humans in contact or figure out how these UFOs actually traveled. So that's what's interesting about this is that, you know, we're trying to figure out how could you potentially teleport and, and do all the things that occur within the Philadelphia experiment. Well, we'd have to figure out how UFOs actually maneuver and understand their propulsion systems, which what's interesting is that not long after the Philadelphia experiment, we've got Roswell, which was when we allegedly recovered flying saucers in New Mexico, which we then subsequently back-engineered their technology. So, very interesting. So, keep, keep note of that. But inside of this book, notes and commentary have been written in the margins of the pages. It appeared that the comments were written by three different authors because they were using blue, blue-violet, blue and blue-green ink pens. So, three different potential uh, people were writing on this book. And all the notes were all written with this weird sort of dictation to it. The authors used a similar and odd style of punctuation and capitalization in their notes. It did seem like they clearly knew each other, though, and they referred to each other as, quote-unquote, gypsies. The notes were each signed with their names, Mr. A, Mr. B, and Jemmy. They mainly discussed the author Jessup's ideas and conclusions, but the authors made many comments that made it sound like they had some sort of intimate knowledge of UFOs in at least two different alien races. And they also made it sound like they themselves were part of otherworldly beings. Their notes made mention of terms like mothership, force field, home fleet, dematerialization, and great war. But some of the most interesting annotations refer to the topic we'll be discussing today. They alluded to some sort of invisibility experiment conducted by the U.S. Navy. On page 7 of this book, one of the writers said, U.S. Navy's force field experiments, 1943. October produced invisibility of crew and ship. Fearsome results. So terrifying as to. Fortunately, further research halted signed Mr. A. There were more notes referring to the supposed incident. This Mr. A wrote another note saying, ethereal types similar to results of Navy experiments in force field invisibility. 1943 solids go through them. No harm to occupants at all. And that was in all caps with some grammar issues there as well. Other notes refer to the Navy's invisibility experimental gadget and ship invisibility experiment. So one of the majors at the Office of Naval Research took an interest in this mysterious book. He thought it would be a good idea to bring it to the attention of two other naval research officers named Captain Sidney Sherby and Commander George W. Hoover. And they took a look at the mysterious writings and eventually they decided to call in the book's author, Morris Jessup. Morris was called in and he examined the notes at the Office of Naval Research himself. And Morris told the officers that he recognized one of the writer's handwriting. He said that he had received two letters in similar handwriting from a man who identified himself as Carlos Miguel Allende. It was determined that the handwriting matched and that it must have been Carlos himself who sent the anonymous manila envelope with the annotated book inside to the Office of Naval Research. Carlos is a very interesting character and we'll dive into his background a little bit more a little bit later. 
But during the meeting, one of the office naval research officers informed Morris that they'd be making copies of the annotated book. They said that these copies would be distributed to the top people at the Office of Naval Research. This edition was produced by Vero Manufacturing Corporation in Garland, Texas, so it became known as the Vero Edition. The company had previously worked with the U.S. military before, and they reportedly had made 12 copies of the new edition. Eventually, though, about 127 copies of the Vero Edition were produced, and some of those copies got into the hands of members of the public. And from there, the mysterious book became an elusive and high-valued prize in the UFO community. Carlos Allende allegedly visited the Vero Corporation in 1969 and talked to their president, Austin Stanton. Carlos demanded a copy of the book in payment for co-authorship. He claimed that it was his book because he'd written all three sets of notes, and there had actually only been one writer. However, interestingly enough, Austin Stanton retired from Vero in 1967, two years before Carlos's supposed visit. So whether or not this visit happened, or if anything Carlos said about it was true, is up for debate. But it turns out that Carlos actually had a habit of sending annotated copies of books to people, including Carl Sagan and members of the University of Colorado UFO Project. That's an interesting thing about this whole story, is that there are ties directly to Colorado, which, is, which I found very interesting, and I, I honestly didn't know before this. But he had also sent some letters to author Morris Jessup, where he wrote about this supposed 1943 experiment, the Philadelphia experiment, in further detail. And in these letters, Carlos claimed that he had witnessed something truly spectacular while he was working on board the SS Andrew Furuseth. He claimed that in the fall of 1943, the U.S. naval ship, the USS Eldridge, was rendered invisible in a shipyard in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and teleported to Norfolk, Virginia. The Philadelphia experiment has also been said to be part of an alleged operation by the U.S. Navy, which is a real, real project, I believe, called Project Rainbow. The Navy denies that the Philadelphia experiment or anything like it was ever conducted, but they have taken sort of an odd interest in what they call a hoax after they first received Carlos Allende's copy of Morris Jessup's book. They were very intrigued by some of the writings inside of it. So now let's dive into the Philadelphia experiment itself, how it was supposed to work, and ultimately based on testimony of those that were there that witnessed it, what actually happened. So to understand this though, we have to go back even further than 1943 because the Philadelphia experiment allegedly involved some of the greatest minds in history, including the legendary inventor Nikola Tesla, which I find very interesting. We've done a whole episode on Nikola Tesla before. Mm-hmm. Incredibly interesting person. I believe Nikola Tesla was perhaps the greatest mind to ever live. Mm-hmm. And his life is honestly somewhat of a sad story. Oh, it's totally sad. For how brilliant he was and the inventions that he was able to create during mm-hmm. his lifetime. But for those that don't know, Nikola Tesla was a Serbian-American inventor, electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, and futurist. He was best known for his contributions to the design of the modern alternating current, AC, electricity supply system, which that's a whole thing too. And you've done a whole video, I think, on your YouTube channel yep. on the whole, I guess you could say, drama between oh, yeah, it's drama. Thomas Edison it's and Nikola Tesla. D- totally. DC, AC. DC mm-hmm. versus AC, because mm-hmm. AC is actually cheaper to produce, goes farther. It's like all around a better form of electricity over dc but thomas edison he had financial 
interests at the forefront, among other things. Mm -hmm. You remember, too, that Thomas Edison, to try to prove to the public (laughs) that AC was like this scary, dangerous thing, electrocuted an elephant. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. How wild is that? It's like like, just just unbelievable that something like that could actually happen back then. I know. Can you imagine something like that? Wow, shit was wild. Yeah. (laughs) Just brought out elephant. Everyone gather around (laughs) this elephant. Yeah, this poor elephant. It's so weird. But yeah, that's a wild story. That whole, yeah. Feud. Yes, I guess, it really is a kinda. feud. But some people are on Edison's side to this day. Mm-hmm. I think he's much better, much better mind. Uh, Smarter. Sure. Yeah, if you want to believe that. that. Yeah. I mean, since 1895, Nikola Tesla had been experimenting with how space and time could be influenced by electricity and magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that in March of that year, a New York Herald newspaper reporter published an interesting article about Nikola Tesla. He actually had just run into Nikola Tesla in a cafe. And Nikola Tesla was looking pretty rattled, just looked like he had been through hell. And he asked him what was wrong. And this is what Nikola Tesla said. He said, quote, I'm afraid that you won't find me a pleasant companion tonight. The fact is I almost killed myself today. The spark jumped three feet through the air and struck me here on the right shoulder. If my assistant had not turned off the current instantly, it might have been the end of me. Yikes. He also described to the reporter that during an experiment he was doing, he was hit with an electric spark, some 3.5 million volts. And that when this happened, he, he was quoted as saying, I could see the past, present, and future all at the same time. So Nikola Tesla was doing experiments that really defy explanation. And based on this statement from him, it seems that during this experiment, he had maybe achieved the ability of precognition, so the ability to foresee events in the past, present, future, or even time travel in some way. But by the 1930s, Nikola Tesla had already started making a name for himself while working at the University of Chicago, conducting experiments trying to make an object or body invisible through electricity. So was this work and experiments that he was doing that would potentially become the foundation of the Philadelphia experiment, if that indeed happened. In 1939, the work was then moved to the Princeton Institute of Advanced Studies, and it was at that point that supposedly Albert Einstein jumped on board with the project alongside other top scientists. Now, this is the hard part because, again, this is yeah not verifiable because if you look up right now, Google, did Albert Einstein meet Nikola Tesla? Yeah. There is no record of them ever meeting each other, mm-hmm. as far as we know. Supposedly, very Which, strongly. Right. Well, because, again, this work would have been classified. It would have been something mm-hmm. that would have been behind the scenes. So there is a possibility that to the public, there would be no record right. of them ever meeting. It However, would make sense. But they did know of each other. They'd actually said things about each other. Um, they, they, Nikola Tesla didn't really like Albert Einstein. They kind of had beef between like each said, other. Like, yeah. I think it was kind of like you know, whose brain is bigger sort of thing. <laughs> and now there's a lot more to the story. Yeah, but it just of why they don't like each I'm other. Sim- but yeah, <laughs> I'm simplifying it to that because obviously it was at the yeah. Well, if you ask people mm-hmm. who's the most brilliant man to ever live, most Albert Einstein, people are going to say Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people surprisingly to this day don't even know about Nikola Tesla. Yeah. Why is that? Well, we're not going to get into that right now, but <laughs> yeah, that is an, say, that's an interesting that's discussion. So, 
1941, Nikola Tesla and these scientists, including Albert Einstein, were working on this Philadelphia experiment project explicitly for the U.S. government. And apparently it was Nikola Tesla and his team who allegedly made the calculations, drew up the technical specs, and even constructed the massive generators and coils, which would then be used to conduct the Philadelphia experiment. And the way that this rumor goes is that before the Philadelphia experiment took place, Nikola Tesla actually suddenly backed out from the project. And as he, as he backed out of the project, he made sure to let people know that if it went forward in the way that it had been planned, that there would be basically a disaster. He said, quote unquote, that there would be a personnel problem which would ensue. Because apparently what Nikola Tesla wanted to do, because obviously there had to be people on board the ship when they conducted this experiment in order to fire up the generator's coils in order to make this whole thing happen. So there's potentially lives at risk here. Nikola Tesla was a proud humanitarian, and that just did not jive with his morals. Mm -hmm. So when he found out that most likely there would be lives lost, he was like, no, I don't want to do that. If we are going to proceed that way, then I have this... We believe these wristbands that they would wear, these zero-point energy wristbands that would help sort of ground them when this experiment, when these generators and all this electricity was generated and hopefully keep them safe. But the government didn't want to pay for that. Hmm. So once they said, hey, Tesla, we're not going to do that. We've already poured all this money into it. Tesla said, well, I'm out. I'm not going to be a part of this if there's potential for human life to be lost. And so at that point, the government's like, okay, fine. Well, we're going to keep forging ahead with this experiment because we've put all this resource. We've got Albert Einstein involved. We've got all of these, all this money put into it. We're going to go ahead. We need this technology. We need to be able to see if we can actually make things invisible and you know, teleport them, move them to mm-hmm. another location unseen. So instead of shutting down the project, they turn it over to a man named John von Neumann, who was also a brilliant mind. But unlike Tesla, This guy worked on the Manhattan Project. He was a principal member of the Manhattan Project, which was the creation of the nuclear bomb. A very real Mm -hmm. project. We know this. This is fact. So he was the type who was definitely not worried about the people who may fall. Right. He was like, well, tough titties. You know, this is is just the price we got to pay in order to potentially Mm -hmm. test this technology and hopefully be able to harness it in order to go out and win World War II. I mean, they were Mm -hmm. trying to figure out. And in that argument, it's like how many more lives would be saved. So maybe. Exactly. Exactly. So we don't really know exactly the story from there. We don't know how the experiment kind of came to the finish line under Newman's leadership. But what's interesting is that the Philadelphia experiment ended up playing out in October of 1943. And Nikola Tesla, after he backed out, after doing all this work on it, setting the foundations and groundwork for the experiment, died in January of 1943. So if this actually happened, Nikola Tesla never even got to see the results of it, which Probably a good thing because, as we'll find out, mm-hmm. the experiment did not go well. No. It's very scary, honestly, to think about. But the end of Nikola Tesla is also just a, a tragic story. He mm-hmm. died alone in a hotel room in New York City yep. at the age of 85. Yeah. And he, the FBI oh. came in and took all of his shit. Mm-hmm. All of his, his like life's work was in that hotel room, pretty much, as far as we know. Yep. And it all went to John Trump. And yeah, the, J. Edgar Hoover, yep. alien what? property custodian. Josh, you were talking about how, like, why no one knows about Tesla compared to others. And I think that might be why, because if you think about it, he's never talked about in schools. 
versus a lot of these other great inventors are right. to some degree. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people just never even are introduced to him. And then he kind of got lost in the shadows. And yep. Yeah. Which, what do you make of that though? Is there, do you feel like there's potentially reasons why? Oh, like, yeah. why would definitely, why oh, would totally. they do that? Why would they try to hide this man's brilliant work and try to tarnish his reputation? Mm-hmm. Because he had a lot of controversial projects in the works that definitely were, you know, things that other people would want to get their hands on could be dangerous. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was reportedly working on a death ray type of. Mm-hmm. very serious sophisticated weapon but also he had a Wardenclyffe tower yeah. where he was ex- the thing was is that he was experimenting with wireless electricity mm-hmm. and this is the biggest invention i think that would have revolutionized the world to this day exactly by electricity being conducted wirelessly as opposed through all the wires that you know still mm-hmm. to this day over 100 years have passed we still all of our electricity comes through wires because we went with DC and AC would have been much easier to mm-hmm. send through wirelessly. Yeah. Many reasons why the government wouldn't want to And why would we want to do that? Instead. And, you know, who is Thomas Edison connected to? Oh, JP Morgan. You know, you mm-hmm. go, you start going down, yeah. you know, the road there. So, test. So, if you think about it in this way, and this is why I think, I don't think a lot of people know sort of this part of the Philadelphia experiment because I think there's, again, I don't have, proof of this but this Mm -hmm. is based on i would call somewhat circumstantial evidence because of the time period we know nikola tesla was doing these things we know albert einstein was doing these things and they were studying technologies that are directly related to a project like the philadelphia experiment so is it possible that this in fact happened but because of what we know about tesla because we know it's 100% 100% fact that the FBI came and took all of his work. Mm-hmm. His nephew even went and tried to get his work back. And apparently there was like 80 boxes worth of stuff that they uh, that Tesla had in his hotel room. And they only gave him back 60 boxes. This is according to his nephew. So there's 20 boxes, potentially more. We don't even know if those numbers are accurate. That were taken by the United States government. And where did that go? And what was in those those mm-hmm. files? And what do they do with them? So when you think about that, I believe the possibility of the government harnessing the work that Tesla did. Tesla was doing groundbreaking shit for the time. And potentially they gave those to the military smartest Mm -hmm. minds. Could this have, in fact, unfolded? It would seem that way. So I think that's important to understand before we get into the actual experiment. So the actual experiment revolved around a destroyer escort ship which first launched on July 25th, 1943, and it was called USS Eldridge. So they built these destroyer escort ships in order to escort those marine merchant ships safely to their destination by protecting the convoys from all those German U-boats and enemy vessels because they were much smaller destroyer ships as opposed to the much larger ones that they had before. They were a lot faster. They were were better at defending against the German U-boats. But in the fall of 1943, the USS Eldridge was outfitted with special generators and coils, which, like I just mentioned, potentially Nikola Tesla had designed and created with the help of other scientists, while it sat at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. And the equipment could cover the ship in an electromagnetic field when activated. The field would be so strong 
when turned on that it would bend and refract the light and sound waves around the ship. And that way the ship would be rendered completely invisible. Because we do know, based on technology that we have today, the military does have basically like an invisibility cloak, like, you know, Harry Potter, the famous invisibility cloak, right? Be able to disappear mm-hmm. and, you know, walk around the castle without being seen. Yeah, that so looked we, so useful as a kid. Yeah, right? Doesn't especially mm-hmm. as a kid, that'd be great to build a oh yeah. Sneak around. This company called Hyperstealth out of Canada has created a a type of like paper thin material that's actually able to bend light. And when you stand behind it, you are rendered invisible. So it's like a real life invisibility cloak. We have a video of it. In 2010, I figured out invisibility. Quantum Stealth is a patent pending light bending material that works by bending the light so that only the background is visible and a target such as a person is removed from view when behind this material. Check that out. You can still kind of see him though. No, you can't. What are you yes, talking you about? No, you Look, can't. You kind of can. Yes, you totally can. <laughs> it's cool. I'm not saying it's not cool. Where? Like, good for him. Where's the human? I don't see a human there. You don't? He's right on the left right now. See? And then watch his shadow. Oh, there he is. Yeah, there he goes. <laughs> there he goes. There he is. It's still, it's very It's pretty cool. impressive. Totally impressive. But I can see But if you him. didn't see him emerge from that, would you ever see that? Yes. No. You, no, you wouldn't. If that Shut was your... in your room all of a sudden, you'd be like, what? In your room? What do you mean yeah. in your room? I don't know. <laughs> it was in your room. I'm saying, so I'm saying if this technology, so this technology has been developed for yeah. military use so that militaries can hide assets. So you could potentially make this big enough to cover a tank and a tank could be mm-hmm. rendered unseen to the optical eye. Like, you want to be able to see it. Yeah. But how useful would that really be? Because you just walk to the side and then you see it. No, no, no. It would be like it. blanketing it. So you'd be able to cover the completely. With the whole material? The whole material. This is just for demo purposes. But okay. the idea would be to cover the whole asset yeah. with this hmm. this type of material that bends yeah, the light. Cool. And so renders it invisible. Hmm. So this is what we have now within the last couple of years. So is it possible that the military actually has had this te- this type of technology or has experimented with this similar type of technology in the yeah, past. Yeah, most likely. If it does exist, they've probably had and it. And this is for just this is not even what the Philadelphia experiment was reportedly trying to do because they were involving electricity in this. This is just a material that refracts the light in a certain way. Mm. Whereas this is actually creating an electromagnetic field which we know Nikola Tesla was experimenting with anti-gravitational Yes. Propulsion systems. Yes, that is true. Which basically bends space and time and allows you to traverse to basically time travel to other points in time and space through Mm. this electro. Because you're basically creating your own little force field that's allowing you to maneuver through everywhere else by bending. You know, there's a there's a great, you know, there's a great sort of demonstration of. You know, if you fold a piece of paper and you put a hole through it, like mm-hmm. it allows you to kind of. It's the best way to explain how we would time travel, I guess. Mm-hmm. So this is what they were trying to do with the USS Eldridge. So these camouflaging generators would use technology based on Einstein's unified field theory and, of course, Nikola Tesla's work. So to understand unified field theory, it's pretty complicated. It's theoretical physics at play. So I'm going to try to explain it in a very simple way, but it's basically there's a ton of similarities between gravitational and electromagnetic forces. And many physicists believe that the forces are unified like Einstein did. 
There are four fundamental forces in quantum mechanics, electromagnetic, weak, strong, and gravitational. Gravity is the only force quantum theory does not have a complete explanation for. General relativity explains gravity, but general relativity and quantum theory haven't been reconciled to prove a unified theory. So that that's the thing, and that's why a lot of scientists are skeptical, because it was the theory was incomplete. So they're like, how could they have actually figured out how to do this using Einstein's unified field theory if it was incomplete? So in in theory, again, these are theories, it might make sense that you'd be able to do this, but Einstein was actually never able to prove it during his lifetime. But going back to Carlos Allende, he claimed that Einstein had actually secretly proven this theory and that the Navy was actually using it for this series of top secret invisibility experiments. So as we said before, the USS Eldridge was equipped with these special generators and coils for the experiments, and from there, the experiments were performed somewhat successfully. In some cases, the Eldridge was made completely invisible. The first experiment allegedly occurred on July 22, 1943. And keep in mind, the ship officially launched on the 25th, but apparently when the generators turned on, the ship was enveloped in a green fog and actually dematerialized. After the generators were turned off, 15 minutes later, the ship reappeared. But many of the crew members on board of the disappeared ship suffered from severe nausea after it reappeared. The crew was also really disoriented and in a state of physical shock after the experiment. So the experiment was successful in that the ship disappeared, but it was still too dangerous for the crew to be fully implemented, and the crew members seemingly continued to suffer the side effects. In August of 1943, two Navy sailors were involved in a bar fight at a tavern in Philadelphia. According to an old news clipping, the waitresses at the tavern reported that once they called the police to break up the fight, the sailors actually vanished into thin air. And while they were fighting, the sailors had been coming in and out of invisibility in front of the patrons and barmaids. So fast forward to the infamous Philadelphia experiment, which happened on October 27th, potentially the 28th or 29th of 1943. Allegedly, on this particular day, the equipment hadn't been recalibrated properly from the last test, but the experiment went on anyway. Obviously, we don't know if this was intentional or not, or this was just a mistake that was made. But when the experiment was run, the USS Eldridge disappeared from the Philadelphia shipyard in a flash of blue or green mist. Meanwhile, on that same day that this experiment is going on, Carlos Allende was standing watch on the foredeck of SS Andrew Furuseth that day. The ship was apparently docked in a shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia. The SS Furuseth was a U.S. military cargo ship responsible for transporting troops and supplies. And while he was standing watch, sometime between 5.05 and 5.20 p.m., Carlos claimed that he saw something incredible happen. Next to the ship he was on, just a short distance away from it, a destroyer escort ship was sailing through the water. Carlos might not have known it then, but the ship was in fact the USS Eldridge, or the codename DE-173. At first, he didn't think really much of it as they saw this escort destroyer ship sail by. But then Carlos saw a strange force field form around the ship that was surging powerfully in a counterclockwise direction. So the USS Eldridge clearly had some sort of electromagnetic field around it, which was potentially what allowed it to traverse through time and space from one physical location to the next. And Carlos could actually smell the force field, which he said had an ozone-like odor radiating from it. The odor was so strong that Carlos could taste it. And this force field was making noise as well. At first, it sounded like a humming sound, but it started to build into a sort of humming, whispering sound. And as it continued to build, it became a strongly sizzling buzz, he said. 
So according to Allende, this force field was a particular shape, and he described it as an oblate spheroidal shape, which when I look that up, it looks like almost a, a 3D saucer looking spherical shape, almost like if you took a sphere and smashed it down. Mm. Yeah, that's a good um, way to put it. Like a flying saucer, which I think is kind of interesting. And apparently it stuck out more than 100 yards from the beams of the ship. And Carlos actually reached his arm out towards the force field and he was able to insert his arm into it up to his elbow. It had a sheet of pure electricity surrounding it and Carlos could feel the push of the force field's humming, pushing, propelling flow against his arm. And the force field continued to grow in strength and density. As it did, it continued to push against Carlos's arm. And once it reached maximum strength density, it completely pushed his arm and hand backward. He said the flow was strong enough to almost knock him completely off his balance. He thought that his entire body were in the force field. He would have been knocked completely flat against the ship that he was on, Steck. That would feel so crazy. Yeah. Imagine, which I think a lot of people are like, why the fuck, if you saw this, would you just decide to stick your arm into something like this, right? <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, that doesn't seem too smart, right? But Carlos apparently watched the air around the USS Eldridge turn slightly, ever so slightly darker than all the other air. And after a few minutes, a foggy green mist began to rise, and it looked like a thin green cloud. Carlos thought this was a mist of atomic particles. Then he watched as the USS Eldridge gradually started to disappear. So it just slowly starts fading from view. He said the stupendously colossal whirling whizzing force field was turning the ship invisible before my very eyes. The ship and all of its crew then became totally invisible or at least extremely transparent to the point where they were naked to the human eye and they couldn't see it anymore. Carlos saw that the ship was still there though because its hull left an impression in the water. So the ship's weight was still displacing the waters that sailed along the ocean at a normal speed. An analogy to help you try to visualize this is if an invisible person was running on the beach, you'd still see footprints in the sand as they moved, even though you can't see the person themselves, which is interesting. So the ship is still displacing the water as it's moving, but it's not yeah. visible anymore. Creating like a wake. Right. How easy would that be to see if you weren't looking for it, though? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, you probably wouldn't notice unless the ocean just happened to be calm as glass that day. Like mm -hmm. you, most of the time, the ocean isn't like that. So you probably wouldn't notice that at all. I mean, he's giving a lot of very, very intense details. According to a taped interview with Carlos Allende, the ship then scooted off and resumed patrol. And that ship was reportedly the USS Eldridge. In one account of the incident, Carlos wrote that there was a large explosion and he and his fellow crew members lost their hair in big clumps. It was as if they were being affected by nuclear radiation. Then apparently, this giant ship, the USS Eldridge, was then teleported back to the shipyard in Philadelphia. One report claimed that the ship actually time-traveled 10 minutes into the past, but something had gone extremely wrong with the experiment, which at first glance would be like, oh, that sounds like it went well. I mean, it went yeah. from... Philadelphia to Norfolk, Virginia, which I think is like 300 miles or something. So it traversed this complete. time. Yeah. But horrible side effects. But when it got back to Philadelphia, many of the crew members suffered very serious side effects. Some of the crew members' bodies were actually fused, literally fused to the mast and metal of the ship. It's hard to even picture this. Yeah. Like there's little, you know, drawings and video well, there's rendering. A, so they, there's a movie that was made on this and they, mm -hmm. they, that gave us a visual representation of what yeah. this might have looked like. And basically, it's like 
humans being melded with which obviously you're like how the fuck is this real at all this seems like some yeah. science fiction shit but imagine for a moment that this is real what's weird about this is because during the teleportation process when you dematerialize you have to rematerialize and what happened was instead of all of the particles and all of the you know everything being reconstructed properly something went wrong in the experiment where that just didn't happen instead everything got sort of sort of combined in a way mm. so imagine but somehow individuals were bodies torn apart hands coming out of different places in all these crazy positions still alive though some still alive being melded into the sink after this happened really hard to picture I mean, yeah how, it's it's I super hard to picture then the other sailors that didn't happen to be merged with the actual ship itself would go blank, meaning they'd suffer from random bouts of invisibility. But apparently this was temporary and it didn't feel unpleasant. But the effects of being in the force field caused some of the sailors to be able to walk through things, which also lends to the fact that those sailors in the bar fight were suffering side effects of the experiment going sort of fading in from view in and out. Other sailors laughed and staggered around as if they were drunk, and many of them suffer from madness and insanity. Some of them later spontaneously combusted and burned for 18 days, which we do know. Spontaneous days? combustion is a real phenomenon that has happened where human beings spontaneously combust. Yeah, that is a real thing. Well, I guess it's not, I don't know. There's many there's cases not, where they're, you're not, not a able ton, to yeah, actually. Yeah determine no, why sure, this but, happened but yeah so just keep that in mind there were other sailors that were frozen in place as if they were in some sort of waking coma and this was ended up being called getting stuck and when a sailor got stuck they would be conscious but they were unable to move as you can imagine this would Sounds be highly horrible. unpleasant and the feeling was described as hell incorporated they needed to be quickly touched by two or more people who had been in the force field or else they go into what they called a deep freeze and apparently it took six months and $5 million worth of electronic equipment to have some of these crew members unfrozen. And if they stayed frozen for longer than a day, they went insane. Allegedly, all the crew members who suffered side effects from the Philadelphia experiment were held at the Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland while the Navy tried to figure out what to do with them. The crew members had allegedly been brainwashed in order to cover up the experiment, and only eight or nine of them were ever released from the hospital, and they were said to suffer from mental incompetence. Of course, this was the perfect cover-up for the U.S. government if anyone asked about the survivors of the experiment. Mm -hmm. And then those that were miss just straight up missing from the ship or deceased were reported back to their families as casualties at sea. And since the effects of the experiments were so disastrous, the Navy canceled the project and no other invisibility tests were conducted after this final Philadelphia experiment. The whole thing ended up being scrapped and then covered up so the public wouldn't know about the experiments. Carlos Allende claimed to be the only living witness who could tell the tale of seeing the Philadelphia experiment, you know, seeing the USS Eldridge appear in Norfolk. Most of the story of the Philadelphia experiment comes from this one guy, which that's where right there, I struggle. Mm -hmm. Okay. But again, remember that the Navy was intrigued by this an annotated copy of Morris's book, which in the book, Carlos Allende had written all these things that they found very interesting. So let's dive into this Carlos Allende guy a little bit more because obviously he knows some shit 
He's pretty interesting Maybe. to say the least. Well, I, I think he does know some shit. I think he's clear, I think at okay. the very at the very base, if you don't believe the story, you don't believe that he saw what he saw. Mm-hmm. The guy is he's intelligent. I mean, he does yes. know some some stuff about UFOs and okay, the I'll way that some him. of this technology may work. But it wasn't until years after the Office of Naval Research received Carlos's book that the world discovered his true identity. It took forever to figure out who this Carlos Allende guy was. And it actually turned out that this guy was a man named Carl Meredith Allen. So Carl Allen, very this is very interesting because it ties back to Colorado too, which I think I think I don't know why a lot of these UFO conspiracy guys yeah. always come back to Colorado, but there's there's I think I don't know. There might be something to it's that. Because we're a mile higher here. <laughs> Boom. That's right. It's because we're maybe you got a point there. Maybe there's something about being a mile above sea level. Maybe it's elevation, yeah. It just makes us no shit that people other people don't know. So Carl Allen was born on May 31st, 1925 in the town of Springdale, Pennsylvania. He was the youngest of his parents, five kids with three older brothers and an older sister. His parents said that growing up, Carl was brilliant when it came to school. The problem was is that he did everything he could to get out of going. And when he did show up, he'd sleep through the lessons. Sometimes the teacher would have to wake Carl up and ask him to solve a calculus or algebra problem written on the blackboard. And Carl would stare at it for a minute, then give the teacher the correct answer and then go right back to sleep. That's I like his how, style. That's how brilliant he was. Mm. He could also speak multiple languages fluently too. His brother said that Carl had a fantastic mind, but he never really used it. He was also always pretty much an outcast type and lived a lot of his life as a drifter. Carl apparently quit school after failing the ninth grade, and at the age of 17, he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps. He wasn't in the Marines for too long, because only a year later, he was discharged for a medical disability. A few months later after that, he enlisted in the Merchant Marines and was assigned to the SS Furuseth. Of course, in 1943, he claimed to have witnessed the Philadelphia experiment, but he also claimed to have witnessed a UFO just a few years later. Carl said that he was on board the SS Malay when he saw a brightly flaming object that he called the Great Ark. Apparently, this Great Ark... UFO touched down nine miles away from the Malay and deployed smaller crafts that he said looked like lifeboats. Carl claimed he was steering the ship at the time and they pulled up parallel to the Ark about four miles away from it. And then that's when the Ark exploded and almost capsized the ship he was on. Carl claimed it was a small nuclear explosion with no harmful fallout. And according to him, the Malay was the only ship to have survived this UFO exploding. In one report, Carl stated that this occurred on June 2nd, 1946. In another, he claimed that the UFO explosion happened in May or June of 1947. And according to records, Carl did serve on the SS Malay from May 8, 1946 to June 22, 1946. So this does somewhat match up with the timeline of his claims. But his family has admitted that Carl Allen was a master leg puller. Once while he was at work, he faked a heart attack so convincingly that doctors had to run three EKGs to be sure he wasn't really in cardiac arrest. Carl's brother later found some medical texts on coronaries that he had annotated in his unique style. Another time, Carl pretended to be an expert in antiques and somehow came into contact with a woman who was an antique dealer. We don't know what happened during that interaction, but whatever Carl did or said really upset this woman, and she actually ended up crying as a result. In fact, Carl's brother said that some of his kids have never met their uncle Carl and they never will. The brother said that his wife, Carl's sister-in-law, was actually scared of him. So it seems like his family thinks Carl's crazy, which is so mm. weird how crazy Carl 
<laughs> Crazy Carl. Carl didn't see his family much, but he did send his relatives a lot of stuff. He would mail them magazine and newspaper articles, letters and cards, all annotated with all the little notes in his distinctive style. So previously, Carl referred to himself as Carlos Miguel Allende, and we're not even sure where that name came from. But we do know that he used many aliases in his life, including Carlos Miguel Allende, Carl Michael Allen, Colonel Carl M. Allen, Carl Christopher Allen, Senor Professor, and Colonel Carlos Miguel <laughs> Cristoforo Allende. He sounds like a wild man, honestly. Seems like he can't make up his mind on what he wants yeah. to be. Yeah, real character. Mm-hmm. That's character why I'm like, Carl. this is the dude that we have yeah. to go off of this. Yep. Oh, That's no. my beef with this one, too. Well, It's still fun. It's still interesting. Is it possible Crazy Carl saw what he saw, but maybe he didn't understand what he saw and therefore we're getting in maybe an inaccurate description of what actually happened but in fact yeah, i mean anything's possible there was right? a okay. project going on sure or is it possible he's a big old liar Ooh. so in the 70s carl even wrote to werner von braun using the name dr carl murdit allenstein werner von braun we know was a former nazi scientist who was recruited by the u.s government after world war ii after Operation Paperclip, Von Braun went to work with NASA and he became the father of the rocket program in the U.S., which we believe we talked yep. about recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think in Disney. In our Disney conspiracies. Yep. And how he was in connection with the creating the movies, you mm-hmm. know, in the 50s, Man in Space, Man on the Moon, Mars and Beyond, all that good stuff. So is it possible Carl just had all these interests mm-hmm. and he wanted to you know it's almost like he was out to prove something to himself and so he writes all these really brilliant people in order to hopefully get confirmation of his brilliance Ah, there you go this is interesting so carl actually lived in or around greeley colorado for about 30 years hell yeah g-town yeah he liked that it was a quieter farming town Mm -hmm. he said that since he grew up as a farm boy he liked being around other farmers well, that is the place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is the place. So Carl wrote a series of letters to Morris Jessup in the mid to late 60s. And the first letter arrived on January 13, 1956. In one of those letters, Carl wrote his sailor's ID number. And that number led to the discovery of Carl's certificate of seaman's service later on when a reporter visited the Allen family home and reviewed Carl's documents. Because that was the thing is like there was a lot of imposters that were coming out claiming that, you know, I'm Carlos Allende. And so for so, so long, we've been trying to figure out who actually was the real Carlos Allende. And so this sailor ID number ends up being sort of the, the way that we confirm that, in fact, it was Car- uh, Carl Allen. So that certificate had been signed by the U.S. Coast Guard Commander William B. Durham, who was the chief of the Merchant Vessel Personnel's Records and Welfare Division. And it showed that Carl had, in fact, served on the SS Andrew Furoseth during the time frame in 1943 when the Philadelphia experiments allegedly occurred. Carl's third letter to Morris Jessup arrived on May 25th, 1956, and he stated that he could be of some help to the author, but to be able to prove his account of the Philadelphia experiment, Carl would need some things. Those items included a hypnotist, sodium pentothal, a tape recorder, and an excellent typist secretary, so he could recall all of his memories of the incident he witnessed. Carl wrote that someone who is hypnotized could not lie, and sodium pentothal is a short-acting barbiturate anesthetic commonly known as true serum as a barbiturate anesthetic sodium pentothal causes the brain's metabolic activity to decrease shortly after the liquid is injected into the person 
So with this decreased metabolic activity, it becomes harder for the person to think. So theoretically, it would make it harder for that person to perform the cognition required to tell lies. It also makes the person more relaxed, which is thought to encourage honesty. However, sodium pentothal doesn't necessarily force a person to tell the truth. It just makes it more likely that they'll spill the beans. But the drug also makes people more susceptible to suggestion. So they might confess to things that they didn't do or agree with the interrogator because the brain doesn't want to do the work required to argue with them. Just kind of like go with anything. Right. Yeah. Kind of like coached or coerced into a confession, which we do know as a side note, as a part of Project Bluebird, Project Artichoke, which ultimately led to the MK Ultra program. The CIA trained special agents and spies by brutally conditioning them with drugs like sodium pentothal and morphine. That way they could resist drug-based interrogations from foreign enemies, or at least that was the idea. They would even get them addicted to the drug and force them to go through withdrawal because they believed this made them resistant to the highly addictive drugs. But anyway, Carl also wrote in his letter to Morris that someone on sodium pentothal could not lie. So if he were both on sodium pentothal and under hypnosis, it wouldn't be impossible for him to lie, or so he thought. Then Carl said he'd be able to recall the event in greater detail and give even more details that his conscious mind couldn't access. He'd also be able to remember some of the names of his fellow sailors at the time, as well as their addresses and phone numbers. However, it doesn't look like this hypnosis session ever happened. A few years later, Carl was asked in a written interview whether or not he'd be willing to be hypnotized to talk about Morris Jessup, Einstein, and the Philadelphia Experiment. Carl responded simply with, Not willing, no, in all caps. However, Morris did write Carl back, and he was very interested in what Carl had to say about his work. Morris himself annotated a copy of the Vero edition, responding to Allen's annotations. The Navy tried to contact Carl, going off of the name Carlos Allende, but by 1956, none of their attempts to get a hold of him were successful. So the story of Carlos Allende and the Philadelphia experiment had been spread in the following years, and it now caught the attention of ufologists and quote-unquote fringe science groups. So in the 60s, the Navy was contacted by a number of people claiming to be Carlos Allende, but they all turned out to be imposters, as they were just trying, you know, to make a quick buck and sell their story. All of the fake Carlos Allendes made the Navy think that there was no such person that existed at all. But Carlos did exist. He was just drifting from place to place under his different names, which made it harder to write to him. But the story of the Philadelphia Experiment doesn't end there. So let's circle back to Morris K. Jessup the UFO researcher who wrote that book, The Case for the UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects. According to official reports, Morris Jessup ended up committing suicide on April 21st, 1959. Supposedly, his career had largely stalled in the last few years of his life, and he had grown obsessive about the experiments, and it drove him into a deep depression. He was also upset over issues with his wife, and she was planning on divorcing him. However, the circumstances of his suicide are sort of out of the ordinary. Morris's death certificate had listed his cause of death as acute carbon monoxide poisoning. Apparently, he had hooked up a hose to his car's exhaust pipe and the other end through his window, and no autopsy was performed. That day, Morris apparently had plans to meet with his friend, an oceanographer named Dr. Valentine. Morris was apparently going to share his conclusions on the Philadelphia experiment. The suicide was apparently expertly conducted in a way that was oddly technical and planned for the average person. His wife also refused to identify his body as she believed her husband would never kill himself. Apparently, the friend who identified his body was unknown to Morris's family as well. So some people believe that Morris's death was actually a murder staged to look like a suicide. Dr. Valentine claimed that Morris was alive when he was first found and he might have been quote-unquote allowed to die so his advanced theories wouldn't be spread. 
However, Carl later stated that Morris hadn't killed himself. He had actually talked to Morris in person two years after he had supposedly died. So Morris apparently told him that someone had been sent to kill him, but Morris instead killed the assassin and then made off with his identification. Carl said that he himself was perpetually in hiding, mostly because of the apparent threats from communist forces, but he did report that the U.S. government had done a wonderful job protecting him throughout his life. He said the government protected him because he and NASA shared the same dream, to have humans travel to the stars. But Carl grew very annoyed at how the Philadelphia Experiment story spread over the years. It seemed like everyone else was making money off of his letters and story except for him. He even unsuccessfully tried to sell off a special annotated copy of the Vero edition at a reduced price of $1,950, which would be about $17,000 in today's money. So at this point, Carl was definitely trying to cash in on the hype, but it, for whatever reason, wasn't working. Carl was so upset that in 1969, he planned to quote-unquote get back at them all. He gave Jim Lorenzen of the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization a special copy of this Vero edition. In the second page of the appendix, Carl wrote a stunning confession. All words, phrases, and sentences underlined on the following pages in brown ink are false. The blow page in the top part of the following were and are the craziest pack of lies I have ever wrote. The object to encourage the Office of Naval Research to discourage Professor Morris K. Jessup from going further with investigations, possibly leading to actual research. Then I feared invisibility and force field research. I don't know. During his visit to APRO, he also confessed that he created the Philadelphia Experiment hoax. He said, quote unquote, to scare the hell out of Jessup. He thought Morris's conclusion in his book would demoralize humanity, specifically young people who are already psychologically affected by the threat of nuclear war. Later on, though, Carl went back and recanted his confession. But was there any truth to the confession at all? Was Carl really admitting to the world that he made the whole thing up? That might not be the case. The story is obviously really wild, and Carl doesn't have a lot of proof outside of his testimony. Again, his own family admitted that he was sort of a massive leg puller who took his pranks to the farthest depths he could convince people. And the Navy themselves have, of course, denied the experiment have ever happened. But again, this confession came during a time when Carl was angry that other people were profiting off of his story. So the confession could have been a way of lashing out against these people and basically discrediting you know, all the stories that they were trying to sell. According to Jim Lorenzen, quote-unquote, Allende still believes that a U.S. vessel disappeared from its Philadelphia dock and reappeared seconds later in the Norfolk, Portsmouth area then disappeared again to appear once more in its original birth. In 1978, Carl wrote a letter to his parents admitting that he wrote all the annotations in Morris Jessup's book himself, so he was the only author there weren't three, like it appeared there there was. Carl's astrological sign was Gemini, so the sign of the twins. So that's where the name Jemmy, J-E-M-I, mm. was judging. used in the Vero edition. You're judging? Yeah, yes. I, I know. I could feel it the entire time. <laughs> Also in 1979, a researcher named Robert Gorman decided to investigate the origins of the Philadelphia Experiment legend. Journalists looking into the story always said that Carl Allen was impossible to pin down since he was constantly moving. Those journalists said that many of Carl's letters had a return address that led back to an abandoned farmhouse in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. But as it turns out, none of those reporters had bothered to check the address. When Robert did, he discovered that the house wasn't abandoned. It was still occupied by none other than the Allen family. So Robert went to visit Carl's family home to gather information about his life. He talked to Carl's family and looked over some documents while he was there. And after he completed his investigation, he concluded that the Philadelphia experiment was just an elaborate hoax created by Carl himself. He wrote, Carlos loves to play games with those foolish enough to play audience. In 1983, Carl appeared once again in Boulder, Colorado, and did an interview with a science fiction writer named Linda Strand. 
the next year of the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment was released in theaters. I think it's on YouTube for free if you want to watch it. It's a science fiction movie that tells the fictional tale of two sailors who time traveled 40 years in the future as a result of this Philadelphia experiment. In 1986, Carl did an interview with a newspaper in Greeley, Colorado, where he made a quote-unquote deathbed confession. He told them that Albert Einstein was actually the mastermind of the Philadelphia experiment, and he was just using the Navy to test his theory of invisibility. Carl claimed that Einstein sought him out and taught him physics and his theory of invisibility. He said the reason Einstein came to him was that Albert Einstein saw Carl put his arm into the force field, and he wanted to ask him about his experience. Carl said that the Philadelphia experiment can and should be repeated again and again. He claimed that repeating the experiment would lead to the creation of potentially starships that could travel faster than the speed of light. This was called Carl's deathbed confession because he'd been hospitalized multiple times during that week, apparently for a racing heart. But it would actually be several years later before he passed away. On March 5th, 1994, Carl M. Allen died at a hospital in Greeley, Colorado. He was 68 years old. What's crazy is it turns out that Albert Einstein actually was working with the Navy during the time Carl claimed that he saw Einstein working on the Philadelphia experiment. From 1943 to 1944, Albert Einstein worked with the Research and Development Division of the U.S. Navy on a consultant's contract. Carl said Einstein was astounded when he found out that he wasn't harmed by the force field and that Einstein believed him and the two got to discuss their ideas on physics and invisibility. But of course, there's never been any confirmation that Carl Allen ever met Albert Einstein. On June 17, 1946, the USS Eldridge was taken out of commission and put in reserve. On January 15, 1951, the Navy transferred the ship to Greece for them to use as a destroyer escort, and they renamed the ship Leon, L-E-O-N, or D-E-54. Leon, or the USS Eldridge, was decommissioned by the Greek Navy in 1992 and ultimately sold for scrap in 1999. Apparently, the Greek sailors thought that the ship was haunted and they never went on it alone. They said that they regularly heard screams and unexplained humming noises on it. The U.S. Navy has said that they have thoroughly looked into the Philadelphia experiment and the claims made, as well as other supposed invisibility experiments, but they concluded that they'd never actually happened. According to their deck logs and war diaries of the USS Eldridge, the ship was first put into commission on August 27, 1943, which would apparently disprove that there was a test on July 22nd, plus the ship wasn't even completed until July 25th. Oopsie. The Navy said that these logs showed that the USS Eldridge sat in Long Island Sound in New York until it sailed to Bermuda for sea trials in September. After the trials, the ship arrived back in New York on October 18th, and it sat there until November 1st. From there, the ship sailed to Norfolk as part of a convoy and arrived on November 2nd. The convoy included the Eldridge, set sail for Casablanca the next day. The Navy says that proof of these records is on microfilm in the National Archives. As for the SS Andrew Furoseth, the Navy said that the ship left Norfolk on October 25th in a convoy and arrived in Northern Africa on November 12th, so there would be no way that these two ships would have ever been in Norfolk, Virginia at the same time. The Navy also has a letter from former Navy Lieutenant Junior Grade William S. Dodge. He was a master of the SS Furoseth in 1943, and according to his letter, William firmly stated that neither he nor his crew ever saw anything unusual while the ship was in Norfolk. He also repeated that the ships weren't even in Norfolk at the same time. But of course, people who believe that the Philadelphia experiment did happen believe that these records were simply falsified by the Navy. The Office of Naval Research was founded in 1946, so they've stated that they couldn't have conducted these experiments because the organization didn't even exist at the time. However, the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory has been open since 1923, 
and the Office of Naval Research started overseeing the Naval Research Laboratory when it was established by Congress in 1946. The Office of Naval Research believes that a lot of the Philadelphia Experiment legend comes from a misunderstanding of a very real thing called degaussing, or the degaussing methods. Degaussing involves running electrical cables along the circumference of a ship's hull, and when electrical current is passed through the cables, they cancel out the ship's magnetic field. Ships were degaussed when they sailed through waters, usually shallow combat waters, that might contain magnetic mines. That way, the sensors on these magnetic mines wouldn't pick up on the ship's presence, so the ship became invisible to these sensors. But when these ships were degaussed, they were still visible on radar and could be seen by the naked eye. As for Albert Einstein, the Office of Naval Research stated that he was consulted for theoretical research on explosives and explosions, not anything to do with invisibility or teleportation. But according to Carl, this was all just a cover for Einstein's real research on invisibility. Again, the Philadelphia experiment was allegedly part of the Navy's Project Rainbow. And the Navy did confirm that the U.S. military did in fact have a project named Rainbow, but they said this project had nothing to do with invisibility. Previously, we had mentioned that a pair of sailors mysteriously vanished into thin air during a bar fight back in 1943. And in 1994, a researcher was able to track down one of these sailors who allegedly disappeared from that bar in Philadelphia. The sailor, a man named Edward Dudgeon, said that he did indeed get into a bar fight that day, but he and the other sailor were underage, and they'd even fake birth dates on their enlistment papers to get into the Navy. So they wanted to avoid any sort of police interaction. At the first sign of a scuffle, the barmaids escorted the two sailors out of the bar, and it's likely that they would have been in trouble for serving minors once the cops showed up, so they made up the story about the sailors disappearing in order to cover up their tracks. Hmm, maybe plausible. Edward also had said something about the degaussing process. He said that all the sailors were sent ashore while contract workers wrapped the ship in cables. Navy men sometimes said things like, they're going to make us invisible to each other during this process. When in fact they were referring to being undetectable to the magnet mines. So Edward believed that one of the civilians nearby could have overheard something like that and maybe misinterpreted it. Carl reported that the force field smelled like ozone. And according to Edward, when the ships were degaussed, the process produced a strong ozone smell in the air. And again, there was that green-blue mist. Edward had another explanation for that. He said it was pretty common to see spectacular electric displays known as St. Elmo's Fire at Sea. St. Elmo's Fire is a naturally occurring phenomenon caused by coronal discharges from ionized fluids. The phenomenon also produces a buzzing noise that gets louder the stronger the electric field is. Apparently, the display is pretty incredible to witness, and sailors throughout history have thought of St. Elmo's fire as a good omen. So Edward believes that Carl might have concocted his whole story around seeing St. Elmo's fire at sea and observing the degaussing process without background knowledge of what either of those things actually were. In 1999, some of the sailors who worked aboard the USS Eldridge met for a reunion in Atlantic City, New Jersey. It was their first reunion in over 50 years, and they joked around about the Philadelphia Experiment and told reporters that it couldn't have happened. They thought the legend, though, was pretty amusing, but they never witnessed any such event. They said the ship had sailed to many ports on the East Coast, but it had never once stopped in Philadelphia. Today, to many, to most, I should say, the Philadelphia Experiment is widely regarded as a hoax, but there are still people who believe that the experiment happened and that it was covered up by the U.S. government. It's been over 75 years since the alleged Philadelphia Experiment occurred, and the legend still intrigues people, including myself, till today. So there you have it, folks, the Philadelphia experiment. Did it happen? Did it not? It seems that all, all signs point to it being this very, very, I will say, a very, very in-depth, detailed story from Mr. Carl Allen. 
it's just it's such a weird way for this whole thing to unfold in my opinion like to go through all the trouble of writing in this book and then sending the book to the navy the navy's looking at it and the fact that just from that this whole i guess legend lives on today pretty iconic honestly at the the end of the day carl will forever go down in history as the one who i guess created the philadelphia experiment but if it did happen is it possible that it was maybe called something completely else but again why do something this crazy top secret right there in the philadelphia um port right like where there'd be tons of witnesses and things like that seems like they would probably do that somewhere where you'd be able to hide it a little bit better so yeah that is it kendall has left the left the chat left the chat you know these days we have to be flexible because we have a newborn so kendall wishes all of you well and that is where i'm going to wrap up today's episode oh kendall and holly are back <laughs> okay so yeah this is our new life yeah. we're, we're we're juggling uh, uh bringing our newborn in to record until <laughs> we have a uh i guess a nanny yeah that can okay. help us out so yeah. we apologize if things seemed a little bit rushed today this is this we kind of ran out of time and so i kind of had to go a little bit quicker than i wanted to and there's yeah. just so much information to unpack on this one and, and I uh, wish we could just start another day, but that unfortunately throws off all of our editor schedules and everything. We're kind of like chain in it once we're in it. So, yeah. but thank uh, you again for joining us <laughs> for this episode of my yeah. podcast. Wait, I wanted to hear everyone's final thoughts. No, I don't believe it. You don't believe it. Nope. I don't believe Crazy it. Crazy crawl. Nope. I, I think this version of events did not happen. Mm. Do I think that potentially there have been experiments on this type of technology? Yes. Do I think Agree. Albert Einstein and Tesla may have worked on some top secret project? Totally possible. Project Rainbow was Project Rainbow something else, or was there another project yeah. that I think Carl kind of got a whiff of some things and then he was like, he's a <laughs> yeah, very creative totally. man. He's yeah. a very creative man. And, <laughs> and he ran with it. And he mm-hmm. ran with it. And yeah, gotta give it ultimately, to him. Good story. he goes down in history yeah. as the creator of the Philadelphia experiment. Yeah, so, maybe you're telling the truth. Who knows? The world may never know. Let us know your thoughts. We're always interested <laughs> to see what you thought of this one. But you know what is a sure fact? What? That our merch is on sale. So <laughs> once again, milehiremerch.com. Right. Support the show. Almost everything is 25% off. No code needed. Get it while it lasts, baby. Amen. Hell yeah. Also, easy way and free way to support the show. Make sure you follow us on Spotify. We'd really appreciate it. And subscribe here on YouTube if you're watching. But we'll see you guys next week. And until then, keep taking your mind a mile higher.